I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. I'm Julia Gillard and you're listening to a podcast of one's own. I'm joined in the studio today by a remarkable young woman, Ellie Demarchelier, who uses her voice and personal experiences to advocate for disabled people around Australia. Ellie was the public face of a national campaign to maintain and defend the integrity of Australia's National Disability Insurance Scheme, taking the fight all the way to Parliament House in Canberra. Ellie, welcome to the podcast. I'm really excited to chat with you today. Thank you so much for having me. This has to be one of the most exciting things I've ever done. (laughs) Well, it's terrific to have you here. Now, we're in South Australia today, but you're a proud Queenslander. Can you tell me a little bit about your childhood growing up there? Yes, I've always been a Brizzy girl, um, (laughs) proud uh, Southside. Yeah, I lived a great childhood. It was always my mum and dad and my little brother, and we stuck together as a close family unit. It was just us, and we lived a, a great childhood. I remember it always being that we looked after each other and supported whatever each other was doing. If my brother was playing a basketball tournament, that meant we all went. If I was playing something, they all came to cheer me on. It was a real team dynamic. And is your brother older than you or younger than you? Younger than me, but only by 18 months. So uh, we were pretty close. And when did you first think to yourself as a young girl, gee, I think boys get treated a bit differently to girls? Did that happen in the family home or was that at school or somewhere else? Definitely not in the family home. We definitely didn't have traditional gender roles in my family. My dad was the one that cooked and cleaned um, and my mum went off to work. So I didn't see that modelled for me in the family home. I think I remember feeling that, really feeling it when I was in primary school and getting called bossy, getting called opinionated and knowing it wasn't said nastily, but knowing it wasn't a particularly good thing when it was said to me and never hearing it said to a boy, never hearing it said to a boy, even if they had just as many opinions as me or was just as bossy. It was only a word that was reserved for girls. It was only a word reserved for if we had opinions on things and knowing it wasn't a particularly positive word and that our opinions and our directions weren't as appreciated. I think. And so really we should be saying natural leader rather than bossy, but it's bossy that gets said. It is, yeah. And that's not a particularly positive word, even though it does actually mean you have natural leadership skills, that you're actually directing people, that you're actually taking some ownership over the situation that you're actually stepping up. No, it's not a positive thing yeah. when it's said about yeah. women. I agree with that. I've been called bossy a fair <laughs> bit myself. Ellie, you live with cerebral palsy, autism and ADHD and the diagnosis of autism and ADHD didn't come until later in your life. When you got that diagnosis Reflecting back to your school days, do you think if it had been diagnosed then, both the autism and the ADHD, that maybe your school journey would have been a bit different? Oh, look, it would have been completely different. I think it would have changed how teachers treated me, how I learnt, how I thought about myself more than anything. I think how I treated myself, how I spoke to myself, the kind of masking I did to fit in, it would have changed everything. But at the same time, all of those things are the things that have helped me to 
build resilience and toughness and perseverance and you kind of can't imagine being me without having done all of those things. So yes, it would have been incredible. And I think the prevalence of young women being diagnosed with ADHD and autism at younger ages is really positive because they're getting support at younger stages and you know there's support in schools now for girls with autism that's a really positive thing I personally wouldn't change it for me because my brain is the way it is because I had to push through what I now know is like autistic thoughts and autistic patterns without that support using my own little strategies but those are the strategies that I now use to campaign and to do other things. And can you paint for us a picture you know for the audience who want to be able to visualize you as a a young person say in your high school years can you paint a picture of what you were like then, what moving around the world was like for you, and perhaps just try and unpack this masking a bit. What do you mean by masking? How were you holding yourself back or presenting a different version of yourself to the world? Look, I was very unwell in high school, particularly later in high school, in years 11 and 12. I think in total, I was actually at school a total of eight weeks. I was in hospital for a six-month stretch in year 11. And I was remarking to my mum the other day that I think being in hospital saved me from a lot of masking and meant that I was actually allowed to be myself more than I would have been had I just been at school. But in particular, I have to say what I found is that being at school, I had to dampen down my opinions. I had to dampen down my bossiness. I had to dampen down my passion and belief in uh, social justice and because no one likes to be as a teenager called out for inappropriate beliefs or if I, I had a friend or someone who said something inappropriate I was very quick to point that out but at the same time I knew that I couldn't go too hard because that would be not very cool as a teenager but then as I said when I went to hospital I kind of was allowed to unmask a little bit and I came back to school a bit more unmasked. I fell in love with American politics while I was in hospital. It was the 2007 primary, Hillary Clinton and Barack Obama, and I had completely become obsessed with it, almost in an autistic obsession. I knew all the electoral college votes for each of the states. While I was in hospital, there was no like 24-7 news at that time. There was no ABC 24 or anything like that. All I had was PBS NewsHour with Gwen Ifill. And so the doctors and the nurses, they knew that at five o'clock each day, not to be disturbing me at all. That was not the time to like come and bother me. So we went to the parents' lounge and at five o'clock we watched PBS NewsHour with Gwen Ifill. And I knew everything about that election and I went back to school and instead of pretending that wasn't a keen interest of mine, I started to talk to people about it and I started to tell people about it. Actually, they started to become interested as well and I, when I rocked up at school each morning, kids would run up to me and go, was there a primary last night? <laughs> and I, I remember saying to them, yeah, there was. Or actually the results come out at like 10.15 in, in morning tea and we'd all run down to the computer lab and look at the results together and they became obsessed just as much as me because they became interested. And I think at that time when you're 15, 16, you actually do start to have an interest in the world and I became a source of knowledge for my friends and others at that time. So 
the positive out of being in hospital that was I got to unmask and be myself. That is a fantastic story. Yeah. And as someone who's grown obsessed about American politics, I am absolutely with you. It's I, not quite as fun anymore, though. Uh, it's got very, very uh, dark in, in many, many ways. I think that's right. I certainly lay on my couch watching the results of Trump-Biden. And you remember how long it took to count. Honestly, I don't think I moved for three days. And then I think it was the comedian Stephen Colbert tweeted, the human mind is not built to think this much about Pennsylvania. I know. (laughs) I thought, I've got to get off this couch. Um, (laughs) So I'm with you on the American politics obsession. Moving on from your years in high school to your time at university, you went to Mm. university to study. What challenges did you encounter there? Oh, they were endless, Julia. Like, I was so excited to go to university despite the challenges that I faced and how long I was away from school. I got incredibly good marks. I was able to get into law, which is what I wanted to do. But I went to university and it just seemed like there was every barrier put in place to stop me from actually succeeding. Every different type of requirement that I needed, support that I needed, that I asked for from the university was I had to fight for in the strongest way possible. And even if I got a yes, it took them weeks and weeks and we were into week seven of the of the semester before it was implemented and I was so far behind and the university campus was so inaccessible. I remember having tutes that were upstairs and even advocating for them to get moved took weeks. So I was missing out on weeks of tutes and you're getting marked on attendance and then you'd have to fight not to get marked as way for those weeks and that took weeks and in the end the fighting took more time than the actual learning and I just became disillusioned with the whole process. It was really soul destroying. It it felt like I was not welcome there and so I was incredibly lucky that I was offered a an incredible job in something I loved at a very young age and I just took the real world option rather than staying in university. And can you tell us what year this was? Uh, So this was around 2010, 2011. Yeah, I think people listening would be surprised and very disappointed that as recently as that, that a university wasn't accommodating set up. I mean, we're obviously talking about the ability to navigate the campus using your wheelchair as well as other forms of learning support. And this is a top-tier Sandstone University, like one of our best universities in the country. It didn't matter how hard I fought. I'm sure people will be very disheartened to hear that. But it did give you the opportunity to take a job. I mean, obviously, your university experience should have been far, far better than that. But you did get offered a job you were very excited about in a state government minister's office as a media advisor. Can you tell us about that? I got offered that job because I I did a volunteer program called Queensland Youth Parliament and I was actually, I stood up to a very conservative young boy had put forward a motion that women shouldn't be in the Australian military. And I, of course didn't agree with that. So despite not knowing anything about the Australian military, I just knew that was wrong. I stood up to give a very fiery speech about gender equality and that, you know, if women pass all the same tests as men, then they should be able to take on any role that they want to. And I gave that very fiery speech, but little did I know that the speaker at the time, they invited different MPs to be the speaker to watch the speeches. Uh, The speaker was actually the Minister for Women. And so I was there giving that speech and just afterwards was morning tea and the Minister for Women came up to me and said like, wow, like you really shut him down. Like, and I said, oh, thank you. Like, I just can't believe someone of our age would even think that women can't be in the military. Like it's 20. 
2011 and she said, I want you to come and have coffee with me in my electorate office. And we had coffee for about an hour and we were talking about gender equality and LGBTI rights and youth and everything. And she said, I have this very, very junior position in my ministerial office. And this was in the dying days of the Anna Bly administration. And I think they were struggling to get any staff because it we weren't going to win another term. So she said, would you interview for it? I thought, as I said, I was struggling at university. I, And I remember saying to her, thinking it's a really junior position, like, I said, you do know I'm disabled. And she laughed and she said, yes, I do know you're disabled. And I said, but that, like, I probably can't run and get coffees. And she said... I can get my own coffee. That's fine. And so I entered that ministerial office at age 19 and worked really hard and became, went from a policy advisor to a a media advisor, which was wonderful because I love communication. And she really did mentor me and teach me a lot of things. And we really did lose that election and lose it big, we did. But I went to work for the woman that replaced Anna Bly in the seat of South Brisbane, Jackie Tried, after that. And uh, it was the start of something really wonderful. And so in all of that, you must have made a deliberate decision to pick the Labor side of politics. From what I'm hearing, if a Conservative Member of Parliament had been acting as Speaker for that Queensland Youth Parliament and come up to you and offered a a position, you probably wouldn't have taken it. Is that right? Julia, I may have selected the Labor side of politics when I was 15. Right. So no member of my family had been a member of a political party, but at 15 I decided I was going to join the Labor Party. I just decided that politics was how you make change and as a disabled person everything in my life was inherently political, whether it was that being in hospital, the number of nurses that were on shift, if they cut the number of nurses, that meant I got less care. Or whether it was at school, the number of teacher aides meant I got less support. Or everything in my life was political. And I saw the Labor Party as the best way to create change for people who, like me, relied on government in order to live their best lives. At 15, I joined the Labor Party. I remember I um, went to my first branch meeting. My dad took me along, even though he wasn't going to join. He just like took me as a chaperone. And I thought I was going to debate the biggest policies of the day and like make a real change. And I remember I showed up and there was about five people there all over the age of 60. And the biggest debate for the night was the price of the raffle tickets. <laughs> um, and That's I, a really important issue. Yeah, <laughs> and I just remember being so disappointed that, like, we couldn't debate policy or even talk about policy or anything like that, that I... I didn't rejoin, shock horror, I did hand out how to votes, but I didn't rejoin. You gave me the best 18th birthday present I've ever received, which is you called the election for my 18th birthday, (laughs) uh, the 21st of August 2010, which meant that I got to vote on my 18th birthday. We may have also had a projector up at my 18th birthday party with the ABC on. So... I chose pretty early in life, but there are ways of being involved and it didn't start off on the best footing. I can understand that. I've been asked in the past why I chose that date for the election. Uh, Now I've got a new answer. I can say, well, it had to be on Ellie's 18th birthday, of course, of course. And in this story, there are obviously women who have been involved, Karen Struthers and then Jackie Trad and obviously Anna Bly was Premier. I was Prime Minister at the time. Did you think to yourself as a young woman that politics was more the preserve of men or did you see these women figures in politics and just think this is something that women do as well? Were you conscious of the gender discrimination in politics or not? 
I don't remember being particularly conscious of it when I was little. I really grew up in the girls can do anything Spice Girls era of like really girls can do anything. And, you know, Anna Bly won that 2009 election. Um, I was surrounded by powerful women. But I know you always ask your guests what's their biggest moment of misogyny that they've faced. And it really hit me when I went on to work for Jackie Trad after the 2012 election where Campbell Newman's government won 78 seats and Labor won seven. And we went into that Queensland parliament and of the 78 seats they won, only 11 were women. His cabinet of 19 had three women in it. Walking into Queensland parliament with that ratio of men to women the culture was the most men's club, boys' club, power imbalance experience I have ever had in my life. And I realised that men still rule politics and they rule it in a decisive, combative, aggressive way. It permeates every part of policy-making, of decision-making, of how things were run. I also realised that sexism runs hand-in-hand with ableism. During those three years, you know, I was with Jackie every single parliamentary sitting. One staff, I thought it was very funny to inform me that the LNP MPs had a nickname for me, which was Jackie Trad's Crippled Girl, which everyone focuses on the crippled bit, which is, of course, horrendous. But the girl bit is just as demeaning. People wouldn't take direction from me because of my age, but yet there were male staffers that were younger than me that walked around in suits commanding power. There were no family-friendly sitting hours. We were sitting until 3am, 4am with multiple bars in the parliamentary house. It was just the most masculine energy you have ever felt. And It made me realise how far we have to go in order to change the culture in politics because although the Labor Party and when we won government in 2015 and Labor came in with 50% women, the culture changed immediately and having women there changed the feeling of the parliament immediately. It's not good enough. We have to have both sides of politics both sides that can form government meeting this challenge. Otherwise, we have this seesaw of culture coming in and out of our places of power. And it commanded a feeling of unsafety, if I'm being honest. That is not going to get the best public policy out of people. So that time in particular is when I realised that we have a really long way to go. We do still have a long way to go. You moved from that world, which you've described so well, you moved from that world into the non-government organisation world. Is that better? How would you do the contrast? I would say that it doesn't automatically feel as bad or look as bad. It comes across as more supportive and like a teamwork environment. But too often what I find is women are doing the hard slog labour work and their ideas, their thoughts, their work is being devalued, particularly in the community services areas that I was working in, and that men are rising to senior levels and executive levels really quickly and the women that are putting in the hard slog are staying at levels particularly in middle management and not ever moving past that, there doesn't seem to be any acknowledgement of that or, you know, for a sector that is about looking after people and about heart and community, it doesn't look after its women particularly well. And I have to say from an ableist point of view, I actually had the 
two biggest pieces of discrimination against me at work in community services positions. And so that says to me that because they're often underfunded and understaffed, they don't have the human resources capability to understand their responsibilities to people with disability and they're just not getting it. So I think we need to be talking more about what discrimination looks like and expecting more from our community organisations. Can we just do a bit of a sidebar in some ways to talk about terminology for people who aren't familiar with the term ableist or ableism. Can you describe that? And I know that you prefer the terminology disabled person rather than person with disability. And so I used in the introduction to this podcast that term. Can you describe why you prefer that? What do you think that says? I'll start with that one. Disabled person is identity first language. It says that disability is part of who I am. I think for a long time, people thought that putting people with disability was about not making the disability who the person was. But just as I'm a queer person and LGBTI is something I'm proud of, and we we talk about pride with LGBTI a lot, and that's a big part of that community's vision and I guess how they're viewed – why can't we be proud of being disabled? I'm proud of being disabled and I'm a disabled person. I'm not a person with a disability, just like I'm not a person with queerness. That would be strange language. It almost sounds a bit to me, and this is my personal belief, people with disability makes me feel a little bit like it's something to be ashamed of where I don't feel like that I feel like and this is a new way of thinking in disability world disability pride is something that is really important to me because it's pride in my community not just in myself pride in the disability community for its diversity for its resilience for its perseverance for its its ability to look after one another. We are a community that is incredibly strong. And so why would I not want to be part of that community and proud of it? Ableism, much like racism or sexism, ableism is discrimination and poor attitudes towards people with disability. It is thinking of people with disability as less than. It is at a societal level, it's putting up barriers for people with disability so that they treated as second-class citizens. Ableism is just as serious as sexism or racism, homophobia, but we don't talk about it as much. It's not a phrase people hear as much, but it's certainly pervasive throughout our community. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. I certainly saw the strength and resilience of the Uh, disability community in the campaigning for the National Disability Insurance Scheme, I went to some incredible campaigning events. I mean, literally thousands of people and many of them had been at that campaign for decades. Can you talk to us a bit about you're a campaigner now, but that's something that you were a little bit hesitant I think I'm right in saying you originally didn't want to be pigeonholed as a disability campaigner. What made you decide that you were going to get involved in that kind of campaigning? And, you know, what would you say about the campaigning strength of the community, the NDIS and what's happened since? 
So when I worked for Karen and Jackie, I was very clear with them that I didn't want to work on disability policy. I didn't want to be known as the disability policy person or the disabled advisor. I wanted to be known for the quality of the work, for being a good political advisor, not for being the disabled advisor. So I thought that being involved in disability policy would just highlight my disability more. It wasn't until I faced those two pieces of really bad discrimination at work that I realised that no matter how good I was at my job, my disability was always going to be a factor. At that point, I went for a job and I got the job and I went for my first day at the job and I, I turned up and they went, oh, your team is actually upstairs. And I realised that I had gotten through all the processes of the interview and everything without them realizing that I was in a wheelchair like I had hidden it so well that they hadn't really even clicked on that I was disabled I just went I'm just gonna own this like I'm gonna own it really big if I'm gonna do this I'm gonna do it big so I actually got new headshots taken and I got them taken in my wheelchair and I wanted the wheelchair in the photo and I posted them on Facebook and I have a very old good friend who I have been friends with since I was a teenager who I played wheelchair basketball against many will know his name his name's Dylan Alcott and he saw my headshots on Facebook and he gave me a call and he went like love the headshots they're amazing I'm running a new campaign on employment called breaking down the barriers will you be involved in this new campaign I'm running I meant that I was on tv advocating for employment I was on billboards I was on all this stuff and it was the first piece of activism I ever did on disability and I went this is what I'm supposed to talk about I remember going to the Every Australian Counts rally with my mum and I remember actually feeling a little bit overwhelmed by it because I remember thinking as we were walking down in Brisbane, it was in uh, King George Square and we're walking down to King George Square and I remember thinking, oh, there's only going to be 20 or 30 people there. Disability rallies, we don't get much support. And we turned the corner and there was this sea of red shirts that went all the way over the bridge. You couldn't even see the end of it. There were people in hospital beds being pushed down. Everyone was there. I felt overwhelmed that our issues were finally being heard. We were finally being seen. And it felt like our moment, finally. And that campaign, the Every Australian Counts campaign, was such a force. It wasn't a little campaign that could. It it was a massive movement of Australians coming together to say, what we have now is not good enough. We want the best system in the world. And then to have a government led by you that at the time you were in minority government. And so, of course, you had limited political capital. To actually spend political capital on people with disabilities, like, that was incredible. Like, I just remember it being a moment in time where it felt like we counted. And in the years since the NDIS was created, I certainly uh, remember the legislation, the creation of it as an incredibly moving moment and those Every Australian Counts rallies and the campaign. You've caught it so well. They were overwhelming. Football stadiums of people. I mean, it was just huge. So that energy did propel or help propel the NDIS into existence The campaigning you've done since the creation of the NDIS, can you talk to us about that? Yes, so Every Australian Counts obviously helped create the NDIS, but at the last election, the NDIS was really at a crossroads. The Morrison government had tried to introduce independent assessments, which would have completely changed fundamentally the entire way that the NDIS works. So the NDIS is about individual packages for individuals, but independent assessments were about 
putting people into standardised packages and that would have completely changed the NDIS. And what we were hearing from people was that there were massive cuts to people's plans. We're talking, you know, 50, 60, 70% of people's plans being cut and that they weren't getting the individualised packages that they needed. So we launched Defend Our NDIS. We launched it on Budget Day outside Parliament House. It was incredible because I think it's the most important piece of activism I've ever done in that we needed a story for the launch day and we were really struggling to find a a story because people were really worried about retribution. People were really worried that if they shared their cut story that they would get retribution from either the NDIS or somewhere else. And then I was speaking to the campaign manager one night and I said, I have a cut story. I don't know if it's very good. And he's like, oh yeah, what is it? And I said, I had to go back to the NDIS when I got a catheter put in because I had to get a tumour cut out of my bladder. And I had all this evidence from a catheter nurse, the urologist, everything of how much I needed. And they gave me in a 12-month plan six months worth of funding. And I went back to them and I said, what am I supposed to do? That's half the amount I need. And the person at the other end of the line said to me, can't you just wash them out and reuse them? And I just remember feeling like for the first time, this scheme that I just believed in with everything, it was demoralizing. It was horrendous. And I told him this story and he went, that's the story. And so we pitched it to the project and they ran like a nine-minute story on this and it ran the night before we launched it. And so we launched the campaign and then we got a meeting with Anthony Albanese and Bill Shorten straight after. And we went into Parliament House and I was so nervous because we were in front of the press gallery and like it, it was it was big and I was so nervous. And my support worker, who knows me really well, she leaned over to me and she said, what would little Ellie think right now? And I went, she would think this is the coolest thing ever. (laughs) And so I went in and I sat there and when Anthony Albanese walked in, he came straight up to me and he said, I saw the project last night. We're going to get the scheme back on track. And so that moment of being really vulnerable and talking about my own pee, like, Mm, and my own catheter bags, like not something you want to really do, started the movement and started, and then more people shared their stories and more people came forward. We had 10 virtual town halls. We had 60 events uh, across the country. We had a massive big night in where you sent a lovely message and we had live music and politics that I had a stopwatch for and got to like stop um, talking and it was the most magical campaign and then um, through the town halls we actually heard of an issue we didn't know of which was the AAT. The AAT was breaking people. This is the process that people go through the Administrative Appeals Tribunal to appeal decisions by the NDIS and what we were hearing is that people were appealing it but they were going up against six seven eight corporate top tier lawyers hired by the NDIS to fight them and it was taking about 10 months to get their case heard so in the end we held a huge protest in Melbourne we found out that the NDIS office was a 10 minute walk to the AAT so we walked in 10 minutes what took people 10 months and uh Thousands of people turned out three days out from the election and we did a good old-fashioned protest walking that 10 minutes and I felt like I did back when I saw that sea of red with every Australian accounts where people with disability finally, we are one in five Australians and you ignore us at your political peril. And that's what happened at the election. And polling post the election saw that the NDIS was a top tier issue every single week of the election. It 
was above climate change. It was mentioned at every single prime ministerial debate. It was a serious issue. People care about the NDIS. They care about it and the visibility of it is so much down to this kind of campaigning, your campaigning, which has been incredible. I want to ask you about a term you use, the polished pathway. Can you describe that for us? The polished pathway, I have to give credit to Catherine McAlpine from Inclusion Australia. I got that from Catherine. It's the term that we use to describe a system that puts people with disability, particularly people with intellectual disability, on a path of segregation. They start life going to special school and they're segregated and then they move to high school, special school, and then they're moved into what we call an ADE, an Australian Disability Enterprise, which is a sheltered workshop, which is segregated. Some can earn $4 an hour working in these ADEs. And this is the polished way because it is the way that particularly parents are sold that their kids will be safe. Their kids won't be bullied because they'll just be with other people with disability. So they move through special school, they graduate, they're told, well, in an ADE, you'll just be with other people with disability. You won't get discriminated in the workplace. So they move them into their only 1% of people that go into an ADE ever leave to go into open employment. So you're there for life. You then get told, well, if you want to move out of home, the best way to do that is to move into a group home setting. So that's, again, a segregated setting. The polished pathway, the easy way to do it is to move into a segregated setting. If that person with disability wants to do group activities or wants to do an activity outside the home, the easiest way to do it is with other people with disabilities segregated again from the community so they only do things with people with disability and suddenly they have spent their entire life segregated from the rest of the community, from people without disability. And that's not just bad for them. That's bad for everyone. That's bad for the community who has missed out on the diversity, the brilliance, the contribution of a person with disability. But you can understand why it happens because the other options are so difficult. You know, you go to a mainstream school and often the funding isn't there to provide the disability support that's needed to support that kid to stay in an inclusive education setting. You go to open employment and often there is discrimination in the workplace as even I've found, you know, I have the most knowledge you could ask for. You try and find accessible and affordable housing, that's almost impossible these days. There was research done recently which found that in all of Australia, there are 66 properties available that someone on the DSP could afford. 66 properties. So you can see why the polished pathway is what people choose, particularly for people with intellectual disability. They aren't given choice. There is no choice. It's just the polished pathway. But it's a dangerous pathway because it is one that embeds segregation, which embeds this idea that people with disability are othered. And can you talk to me about how gender plays into this? I mean, if you imagine, for example, a man who has comparable disabilities to your own or you imagine a boy and a girl with intellectual disabilities of the same dimensions, what is going to be different because of gender? Is anything different? If you look at all the statistics, men with disabilities come out better than women with disabilities. The same gender inequality happens within disability than it happens with men and women without disabilities. Women with disabilities face poverty at higher rates than men with disabilities. Women with disabilities face unemployment at higher rates than men with disabilities. In every scenario, the gender inequality is seen at the same rates as those without disabilities. And 
that's because the same attitudes and stereotypes that feed gender equality for people without disability happen for people with disability. Women with disabilities aren't taken as seriously with their medical conditions in hospitals and by doctors as men with disability. They're not taken as seriously with their pain. Women with disabilities are dismissed when they speak up about issues, when they disclose sexual abuse or domestic violence. The same things that happen to women without disabilities happen to women with disabilities. And so gender inequality is just a bigger issue for women with disabilities as those without. Absolutely. I'm going to come now to the final set of questions. I could talk all day, but uh, I do need to come to the final set of questions. You've already answered what was the worst misogyny you've ever faced. So I'm going to start by asking you if you had all the power in the world, just for a moment, what's the one thing you'd change for women? I would end segregation for women with disabilities. That would look like starting in early childhood education and stopping the separating uh, little kids with who are displaying bad behaviours and moving them into different play. Uh, it would look like moving kids with disabilities into inclusive education where we're actually all learning together because we all live in the same communities. It would look like having people with disabilities in every form of our community, seeing people with disabilities out in our communities. It would look like going into your local coffee shop and being served by a person with disability. There is so many ways that segregation plays a part in our communities. We don't even begin to understand. If we ended segregation and we were inclusive communities, the kind of opportunities that we would open up for people with disabilities would be incredible. But I still think it's actually the communities that would benefit more from the ingenuity, the passion, the creativity, the perseverance of people with disability that we are currently missing out on. And segregation is keeping them in the darkness. It is also keeping them incredibly unsafe. It is keeping them in violence, in abuse, in neglect, in exploitation, and we need to get them out. I want to pick up on that incredibly unsafe. I always put a fact to my guests and the fact for you is that a royal commission being undertaken in Australia into violence, abuse, neglect and exploitation with disability has found some really alarming statistics, including that 25% of disabled women have experienced sexual violence after the age of 15 and a staggering 40% of disabled women have an experience of physical violence after the age of 15. What's your reaction to that? I am not at all surprised. We have known these statistics for decades. They have remained unchanged for decades. I'm deeply concerned that if we don't pay attention to this final report and we don't take it incredibly seriously as a nation, it's not a moment of national reckoning, then we are going to condemn another generation of people with disability to the kind of statistics that you just read out. That would be such a missed moment to not just break free thousands of people who are currently in situations which are horrendous, but it would be a missed moment to create a country that is more inclusive and accessible and actually cares about its people, everyone, that actually sees everyone as a human being. And I, I believe Australians actually think that way, but it's not happening. And if we don't take this Royal Commission seriously, then we are going to miss the moment. And so I just would 
really urge whoever's listening, make sure that the government is responding. Make sure that you're listening to disability advocates about what they want done. Make sure that you are engaging in conversations and reading articles. Just listening to people with disability about what they want to see happening next and trying to support those actions because we fought for decades for this Royal Commission and it feels like it's slipping through our fingers very quickly and we need the help of all Australians to capture this moment. Very wise words and I hope people listening do lean in exactly the way that you've described. I'm going to conclude now with a Virginia Woolf quote. Virginia is famous for saying, there is no gate, no lock, no bolt that you can set upon the freedom of my mind. Ellie says? Ellie says that... In moments of privilege, I think that is incredibly true. But if you are a woman with an intellectual disability living in a group home, it doesn't matter how powerful your mind, how much perseverance you have. Society has set gates, has locked bolts, has done things that no matter how much you try, you can't unlock. And so I would say that... People with disability in particular are very good at unpicking locks and opening gates and finding ways around. But if we could, as a society, set less gates and less locks and less bolts for them, we could really unlock some minds that are incredible and powerful and that will change this country. Beautifully said and thank you for a fantastic conversation. Thank you so much, Julia. A podcast of one's own is created by the Global Institute for Women's Leadership at King's College London and our sister institute at the Australian National University, Canberra. Earnings from the podcast go back into funding for the institute, furthering the work we do to create a world in which being a woman is no barrier to being a leader. Research and production for this podcast is by Becca Shepherd, Connie Blafari and Alina Ecott, with editing by Nick Hilton. If you have feedback or ideas on who you'd like to hear on the show, please email us at giwl at kcl.ac.uk. To stay up to date with the work of the Global Institute for Women's Leadership, go to kcl.ac.uk forward slash G-I-W-L and sign up to our updates or follow us on social media at G-I-W-L Kings. Thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us next time. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.